welcome to the Bright Club Highlights podcast, where we showcase the best bits from the Bright Club on the 11th of May 2012. Later on, we'll hear from a thoughtful scientist and why the Nazis apparently caused dementia. But first up, we have robotic overlord Miklos Danka to tell us why technology could add up to your five a day. Hi, my name is Miklos Andraj Danka, but don't worry, I couldn't pronounce your name either. Unless it's one of the really simple ones like Stefan or Sian. This is my very first stand-up performance. Um, I was in a wheelchair before, so I had it was more like sit-down kind before. Uh, but I was certainly rolling with laughter most of the time. <laughs> um, I'm an undergrad. In fact, I just started my course, and my subject is computer science. <laughs> I didn't always want to be a computer scientist. As a kid, I dreamt of becoming a ship captain, but now I think I missed that boat. Then I watched Titanic, and I didn't want to be a captain anymore. I wanted to be an iceberg instead. <laughs> By the way, did you see the new Titanic 3D? I think it put the whole story into perspective. <laughs> also, if you don't like 3D glasses, you could totally empathize with the seasick passengers. <laughs> At some point, I also wanted to be a grave digger. I had this weird hobby of burying my friend's pets and really anything that was small and moving. For some reason, I don't have a younger brother. In fact, I was an only child, whereas my best friend was a half-child, half-unicorn. Um, my uncle said that I was a psychopath, uh, but sadly he's not with us anymore. <laughs> for grave digging, I was told that I lacked the interpersonal skills for that. I think that was the first time I realized I should become a computer scientist. But I don't know, people keep telling me this. Just last week, one of my classmates came up to me and said that my emotional intelligence was zero and that I couldn't read people's emotions at all. I think he likes me. <laughs> I'm glad I became a scientist. I don't like fake sciences like psychology. For me to laugh about psychology, it's just enough to imagine the sex god, Sigmund Freud. Just imagine the poor guy. Every single fucking time he stumbles, someone goes, hey, did you really mean to fall? Or was it a Freudian slip? <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> As a Komsky, I love collecting gadgets. Did you realize how healthy gadgets can be? There's apple, blackberry, orange. That's already three of your five a day. And if you compare to fruit prices, they are not even much more expensive. Five pounds for a box of raspberries, really? Really, just one box for three months adds up to an iPad. Screw health, I want to play Angry Birds. <laughs> yeah, I read this on the internet, it's probably from a computer scientist. My sex life is like my iPhone 4S. I don't have an iPhone 4S. <laughs> and that's true, that's true. This is, uh, this is my phone, it's a dump phone, but uh, uh, it was, you know, I live on a student loan, so I can only afford vodka. <laughs> but it's okay, at least I can list all of its features. It's Starting calls, receiving calls, ending calls. Uh, I think that's it, actually, maybe text. But you know, that's good. That's all I want my phone to do. Updating my location to the precision of subatomic particles? Nope. <laughs> Giving me life advice? Uh-uh. Notifying me about the color of my friend's piss? Nay. These are smart-ass phones. I don't want any of those. Fact, today's printers are more powerful than supercomputers 30 years ago. So soon you can have your own little particle accelerator in your back garden. To put this into context, um, 
you basically have the mother of all supercomputers, a freaking mega uber computer in your pocket that you use to play Angry Birds and to tweet the scrambled eggs that you had for breakfast because it's so original. On the downside, now your phone has about three billion different parts that can break, which then collapses your lifestyle because you can't fucking tweet your breakfast. Then you take it to the shop to get it fixed, and in 50 business days, they say that it had an internal fuckage, and you have to buy a new one. That's another three months without raspberries. <laughs> so yes, this phone, uh, this, costs three pounds, which is less than a box of raspberries, but at least I didn't have to sell an organ to afford it. You laugh about this, but this is actually true, true story. In China, one of, and a Chinese kid sold one of his kidneys for an iPhone and an iPad. Turns out, iPhones don't filter blood. <laughs> but it's okay, it's okay. He's going to be a cool kid for the rest of his life, which is for about six months, or until the next iPhone comes out. <laughs> At least he can video chat from the hospital. And you know, if you have kidney problems, if kidney failure, then you're in a big trouble. Kidney failure? What's that? Is there an app for that? Angry Birds? That'll do. <laughs> so what? He sold a kidney. At least he didn't cost an arm and a leg. <laughs> now, here in the computer lab, they are researching, recognizing human emotions. Isn't it ironic? Komsky's trying to understand emotions. <laughs> oh dear, dear me. <laughs> I know. Basically, they are saying that if you're happy, your GPS should tell you jokes, and if you're angry, your GPS should just shut the fuck up and follow freaking closely what you're saying. Now, this is the nice British approach. I'm personally from Hungary, as you can probably tell from my accent. And in Hungary, being kind is a sign of weakness. You have to act like a gigantic dick in order to survive. So for example, the concept of queuing just does not exist. We have street fights instead. I personally have never been able to get on a bus in Hungary yet. So I think this much social interaction was enough for me for today, and I also really have to piss. So thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of the night. That was Miklos Dunker, a computer scientist at the University of Cambridge. Now for our first musical interlude of the podcast, here's performer Rosalind Peters. Guys and baby, you're a shiner. I love how you shy, but there's a twinkle in your eye there too. 
to tell you when you know very well you are just extraordinary you know that you're fishing by your own admission but hey just for the record I wouldn't change you for all the tea in China no I'm not joking when I say there's nothing finer than time to one in the sun having fun with you yeah you oh, oh, oh. I wouldn't change you for all the tea in China but I don't want you to turn into a wine and just accept that I love you and don't stop thinking of you and then we can be That's the brilliant Rosalind Peters. Now, our next two acts share a common theme of the representation of science in the media. Still to come, we'll hear why scientists are inherently trustworthy because they're all gentlemen. But first, Graham Fraser is a researcher who works on Alzheimer's disease at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology. Good evening. Okay, so I work on Alzheimer's disease, and when you tell people you work on Alzheimer's disease, people go, oh, it's interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting. And I go, oh, it is interesting. It's ever so interesting. But sometimes I just feel like going, oh, God, no, it's not that interesting. I, I don't scan people's brains. I don't look inside people's heads. I don't put on a white coat and chase mad old people around a nursing home every day. <laughs> I spend eight hours a day putting tiny amounts of clear liquid into small plastic tubes and then putting those tubes into a machine that might as well be a random fucking number generator <laughs> and then squinting at the computer screen, just hoping and hoping that the cure for Alzheimer's disease is going to leap out at me like one of those magic eye pictures that people spent so many hours staring at in shop windows during the 90s. But it is interesting, of course it's interesting. And one of the things that makes it interesting is just the sheer number of people that are affected by Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. There's something like 600,000 people in the UK today with Alzheimer's disease. And um, many of you in here tonight will be affected by Alzheimer's at some stage in your life, either directly or indirectly. And if that doesn't get you, then heart disease or cancer probably will. Um, but because of this, it, it's, it's really, really important that, that you, the general public, are really well-educated and well-informed about dementia and about the treatments, about the cures and what we as scientists are, are doing to find these cures and that we're not sitting on our asses all day looking at Facebook. Um, and I find it a real shame, a real shame that um, the responsibility um, for this education so often falls into the hands of the mainstream tabloid press with newspapers such as the Daily Express <laughs> and the Daily <coughs> Mail. <laughs> now, it was last month, it was the 4th of April, I was walking through Ely train station and the headline on the Express screamed out at me, Statins halt Alzheimer's. And I thought, Jesus Christ. Well, actually, if I see a headline like this, I tend to think two things. I think, A, it's probably a massive load of old bollocks, and B, well, shit, if it's true, that's me out of a job, isn't it? <laughs> because there's the great irony. You work on disease research, the holy grail, the attainment of an infallible cure for the disease, means you've got nothing left to work for. I am working to give myself the sack. <laughs> oh, anyway, I digress. So, statins halt Alzheimer's. So, I 
I thought, well, Jesus, you know, the British Medical Journal, Nature and Science have obviously missed the scoop on this, and the Express have got it. So I rush into the newspaper shop to buy it. Well, but actually, I, I got on the train, went to work, and read it on the internet because it's free that way. Um, so um, I, I start reading, and one of the paragraphs says, Simvastatin, a drug commonly prescribed to elderly patients in homes, has been shown to increase blood flow around the brain and improve memory and learning. I thought, this is good stuff. This is this sound science. I like it. I like it. It's very profound. And I carry on reading. And, uh, uh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. They've made a small mistake here. And it's an easy mistake to make. Um, they've just missed out a couple of words from that paragraph. Because what that paragraph should have said is that simvastatin improves blood flow around the brain and boosts memory and learning in laboratory mice, not in human beings. This is not a case of giving a pill to some mad old people in a home and they suddenly get up and start dancing around like in that film with Robin Williams. Not Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> or Bicentennial Man. Christ, what was he thinking? I mean, Robin Williams not the only successful Hollywood 80s comedian to start churning out utter bilge later in his career. Look at Steve Martin in Cheaper by the Dozen 1 and 2. And my God, I read this today that you remember the film Twins with Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger? They're making a sequel called Triplets. Do you know who the third one's going to be? Eddie Murphy! <laughs> it's funny because he's black and they're white. How could they possibly be brothers? Sorry, I got rather sidetracked there. Um, where was I? Yeah, laboratory mice. Mice, yes. Okay, so it's really important for dementia research. And we have these fantastic mice that recapitulate, they mimic some of the aspects of um, the molecular biology, what's going on inside the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease. They don't actually have Alzheimer's disease. They're not sitting there munching on a piece of cheese one minute and then asking after the great Aunt Beryl, who's been dead for the last 20 years, the next. No, they're mice. So using a headline that says statins halt Alzheimer's in mice is a bit like saying world on the brink of nuclear war in teenage boy's room on PlayStation 3. <laughs> but they come to these fantastic attention-grabbing headlines by some, using something that I like to refer to as the Express Mail Headline Extrapolation System, whereby they just take a tiny scrap of information, often irrelevant information, from the story and then just blow it up into this attention-grabbing headline. And it's how the press works, and it's sad, and it's, it's not right, but, but this is just how it works. And um, so the, the Express Mail headline extrapolation system. It's also called lying. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite another example of this. And this time, I'm going to work backwards. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the story first, and then I'm going to see if anybody in the audience using the Express Mail extrapolation headline system can just take a stab guess at what the headline may have been. So the Daily Mail sent their roving reporter up to the University of York for a conference on dementia. And I'm guessing at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he woke up and thought, shit. I'm supposed to be writing an article on this, and I've spent the whole day asleep in this chair. Um, it's the last speaker, and to be honest, you better make it a good one, because I've got to get something out of this. We're in print in two hours' time. So Dr. Karen Ritchie stands up, and she... Um, details this quite quite interesting case case study of um, it was back in the 50s some French Algerian nationals and they were forcibly removed from their homes and underwent some terrible hardships you know, rape and torture and being made to watch Britain's Got Talent that that kind of thing you know. and um, 20 years later the incidence of dementia in this population was much greater than in a normal population so Karen Ritchie says yeah 
it's reasonable to assume that people that have been through events like this, events like the Second World War, the Blitz, you know, it would explain why we're seeing an explosion in the numbers of people with Alzheimer's disease. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I can, I can buy into this. You know, we don't really know what causes Alzheimer's. So perhaps, you know, something early in your life might, might trigger it, might make you more predisposed to having dementia later in life. Sound, yeah? Everybody agree with me? Sound argument, yeah? So anybody wants to take a guess, using the Express Mail headline extrapolation system, what the headline may have been? Anyone? Pardon? You're so close. <laughs> it was actually, the Second World War may have caused dementia, says scientists. No Daily Mail, no, no, no. That may, they may have been the words that came out of Karen Ritchie's mouth, but that is not the message she was trying to convey to her audience, you misleading bastards. <laughs> because, but, but Daily Mail, you know, maybe you didn't push it far enough because, like the man said down there, maybe what you really wanted to say, because I know how you think Daily Mail, and what you really wanted to say was that Hitler may have caused dementia, says scientist. And, and Daily Mail, I know how you think, and you probably knew that Alois Alzheimer and Hitler were alive at about the same time, and both German. What, so what you wanted to say, Daily Mail, but were too chicken, was that Alzheimer and Hitler conspired to give Britain dementia. <laughs> and Daily Mail, I, also, I really do know how you think, and I also know that you have a xenophobic fucking hatred of anything that isn't white, British, heterosexual, and middle class. So probably the headline that you really wanted to use, but you were too pussy, was that Alzheimer and Hitler conspired with black, lesbian, single immigrant mothers to give Britain, yes Britain, whatever it stands for today, dementia. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> and I caught up with Graham at the MRC lab to find a bit more about how he studies Alzheimer's disease. So I actually sort of work on the molecular biology and the biochemistry behind Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we use a lot of uh, transgenic animals as well, um, which sort of, like I said in, in the stand-up, they sort of mimic some of the aspects of the molecular biology and the biochemistry of Alzheimer's disease. And then we kind of process the brains um, and do biochemistry, biochemical reactions on these. And we also do lots of, lots of in vitro experiments, so things in test tubes that kind of, you know, tell us a bit more about Alzheimer's disease. So are you looking actually at the proteins that form in the brain and cause the problems? That's right, yeah. So in Alzheimer's and in other forms of dementia, uh, you end up with these proteins that form long filaments inside the nerve cells in the brain, and it's thought that these, these filaments, um, made up by proteins called tau and beta amyloid, it's thought that these are actually the cause of Alzheimer's disease. Why do we think that the tau proteins are such a problem? Uh, well, we know this because if we look in the brains of deceased patients, and you, you can do brain biopsies of dead patients, and then it, have a look at the sort of protein makeup um, in these brains, and then you find that these tau filaments are in there, and you don't see them in healthy patients. And also, there are other forms of dementia, not Alzheimer's disease, where mutations have been found in the tau gene, and these mutations directly cause forms of dementia and, and um, tauopathy. So do you look at the build-up of proteins in the brains of the mice and then slice them and stain them and look how the progression goes in these particular mice? 
Yep, I couldn't actually put it any better than you just did then. That's exactly what we do, yes. <laughs> uh, but we also look at kind of disease modifiers. You know, can we give um, any chemicals to these mice to kind of um, stop the progression of the disease? And the benefits of using mice is that you can genetically manipulate them as well. So we can use things called knock-in, knock-out mice to sort of knock out genes and sort of change, change the biology of the mice a little bit to see if it has an effect on the disease progression. So is it a question of your manipulating the tau protein genes in these mice? You can manipulate any gene in a mouse. Um, you, you start off with um, an embryonic stem cell, and then we can just inject a little bit of, or transfect a little bit of DNA into there that will just change a, a gene or two genes in there. And then that change will spread into every other cell in the animal. And that way, you've changed the whole genetic makeup of an animal, or a tiny part of the genetic makeup of an animal, and then it goes on from there. And what sort of changes have you been making to the mice that you use? Um, well, tau protein um, in disease undergoes a process called phosphorylation. So we've changed the tau gene, which makes the tau protein, so that the tau protein can no longer be phosphorylated. And this phosphorylation is thought to be very, very important in Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. And we've shown that if you stop phosphorylation in certain parts of tau protein, then it kind of stops the disease progression. And how applicable to patients in, 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 kind of in, a, in an immediate sense and perhaps in the future as well? Because obviously in your stand-up you're saying the sort of misapprehension in a lot of popular media, the sort of research, okay, this was done in mice, and then, oh, look, we've, we found an amazing cure for Alzheimer's. Oh, well, actually, in this one study in mice is how we found the results. Yeah, I mean... That, that's what made me angry, because stories like that are very, very misleading. Um, and sort of small experiments in mice, they do tell us valuable information, but you can't immediately scale that up to, to say that it's a cure for human disease. There's absolutely no way. And we're probably quite a long way off from having a proper cure for Alzheimer's or any, any form of kind of brain disease in, in this kind of mould. And like I say, it's incredibly dangerous to say that something found in mice can be directly applied to humans. You should never, ever say that. But, I mean, it's, it's not just with Alzheimer's disease um, that these newspapers, beginning with an E and an M, do this. Um, they do it for cancer, for heart disease, for anything. Anything, they just kind of jump on any scientific story and then just blow it out of all proportion and say that it must be a cure, it must be this, it must be that. And it's, it's simply to grab attention for you to buy the newspaper thinking they've got something profound. If something profound is going to happen, you're going to see it in Science, Nature or the British Medical Journal, not in one of these newspapers. That was performer Graham Fraser. Now, moving on to a performer who doesn't actually study science, but the history and philosophy of science, or HPS. Oliver Marsh is a student at Cambridge University, and before we hear his set from the show, let's hear from him why it's important to remember that scientists and non-scientists are all human, and why he studies the history and philosophy of science. I did a bit of HPS in second year as one of my courses, and it is quite interesting when you've been you know, looking at electromagnetism or thermodynamics and then just being reminded that... Uh, that these very, very clever people who could actually do maths were actually people. They didn't just randomly throw down a load of symbols. And it's quite nice sort of looking at, you know, learning a bit about things that I've never really had time to look at. Like, you know, I feel I know quite a lot about Victorian Britain just in general now. And then actually seeing how that feeds back into science. It's quite interesting. It allows you to see things that you never really understood in a different light. One of the things you mentioned in your set is um, the sort of the trust 
in science. So what do you think it is that makes scientists intrinsically trustworthy to non-scientists? Well, I mean, this is this is actually an interesting question from a history point of view, because you go back 300 years, and the reason that scientists trusted is because they're all gentlemen, and you trust a gentleman. It's, it's what you do. That's what gentlemen are. Uh, nowadays, of course, we don't have that quite so much, but science has, in the intervening time, become a very complex, very, very hard-to-understand set of rules. And when people are faced with something they don't understand, they can either reject it without knowing why or accept it without really knowing why. And when these people who have got these very complicated rules are also producing planes, medicine, etc., it seems a lot, lot more sensible to accept what they're saying rather than try and trawl through it yourself and find errors. But do you think perhaps this kind of almost blind trust is perhaps not necessarily a good thing for accurately portraying real results that real research is getting? I think it's essential because it's just impossible now for everyone to keep up with, you know, if, if, if someone's going to question, say, the neutrinos travelling faster than light experiment, they can't really question that at the level of a high-level experimental physicist without being a high-level experimental physicist. It's just not, not practical. The issue is when people start to trust things that they could do a little bit of, uh, you know, research around the people, you know, they are one climate change sceptics. If you did a little bit of, of looking at actually what they're saying, it, it becomes, I think, quite obvious that they're, you don't need to be able to be a meteorologist or a geologist or similarly to, to actually look at the data and realise when you follow their sources, they're taking data from uh, climate change scientists and then cherry picking the bits that they like. That doesn't require you to be a scientist that just requires you to know how scientists actually work which can involve for good or bad reasons selecting bits of data and well i suppose following on from that do you think that non-scientist view of scientists and what they do is accurate or not very accurate at all well i mean as i say in the stand-up what scientists view of science isn't always entirely uh, defined fully so i think uh, asking the non-scientists to try and work it out is 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 going to be a tall order um but i i think that, that that there is sort of a large misconception that science either deals with you, you there seems to be this kind of divide either science deals with particles planets and other sort of very esoteric things that don't have apparently much bearing on our everyday lives or they're studying alzheimer's or cancer or something which does have uh, you know a lot of bearings and there's not a lot of room for the grey areas when you actually think like Large Hadron Collider was instrumental in uh, the construction of the World Wide Web and the internet and all that. There's, there's a lot of intermediate uh, levels and I think that that's something that people could be more aware of. Do you think uh, events like Bright Club are kind of important for integrating and engaging non-scientists with science in a kind of slightly more informal way? Anything uh, that, that that can help that integration is is a is a good thing. I mean, the the major theme of my stand up really was scientists and non scientists are all really humans, and you know a lot of us do want to do stand up, make people laugh. A lot of us just want to laugh, whether because of science or otherwise. And I think that showing that science can be part of, you know, it, it's not that people can joke about their families or their relationships or whatever 
and science is something that they endure. I think that's 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 a sad image, and I think that people, you know, being made aware that science is like a cultural product, like like anything else that you can joke about, have a laugh about, and also to show that um, scientists do live in quite an informal world at times. It's not this machine-based industry that people seem to think it is. Hello, 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 good, hello. You all well? You all well? Good, let's crack on. Right. I've got tied up in this. Let's put that there. Now, I am down on the poster for this event as Oliver, the thoughtful scientist, Marsh. Which is nice, you know, the thoughtful scientist. There's only one, and it's me. <laughs> You're basically watching a sort of freak show. So enjoy it while it lasts. Of course, that's not true. There are more than one thoughtful scientist in the world, and I'm not a scientist. I actually work in the field of history, philosophy, and sociology of science, because the best subjects have the most syllables. <laughs> now, my particular interest is quite relevant tonight. It's about how people, non-scientists, perceive scientists, how scientists present themselves, the media, and all that. And there's one crucial issue, which is people trust what scientists say. They believe it, which is unsurprising. Scientists are impressive people with big brains and even bigger hair. And they, they can get out with anything they want, and people will believe it. So, for instance, scientists could come out and say, people of the world, science, got a confession about it, we made it all up. Sorry, you know, we didn't put a rocket on the moon, because there is no moon. We just put something up there for banter. Gra gravity, trick of the light. Light, trick of the light. And everyone would have to believe them, because unsurprisingly, people aren't happy about challenging scientists on their own turf. Problem is, it's not entirely clear what their own turf is. Even scientists don't know what science is really. You can't work out what science is exactly, is it asking questions, say? You can ask a lot of questions that aren't science. Scientists don't just go around all day going, hmm, is there a Lord Gaga? <laughs> Who did eat all the pies? And given they ate all the pies, how are there still pies remaining? <laughs> is it perhaps making observations and making deductions from observations? I can do that. I'm no scientist. It has unusual consequences. For instance, a friend of mine got off their bike the other day, took off their bike light and put it in their pocket, still turned on. And I noticed this, I observed this, and I deduced from it. And I walked up to my friend who had this red flashing light in their pocket and asked them why they were carrying a tiny mobile brothel. <laughs> okay, you might be saying you're being silly now. It's asking questions and doing observations about the natural world, about natural things. Why are natural things so intrinsically interesting? This is the Brian Cox school of TV science. That Oh, look at that star. This hand, this hand denotes sex appeal. Oh, the star is, is so far away. So's Leamington Spa doesn't make it intrinsically interesting. <laughs> now, now, I think natural things are interesting. A lot of people think natural things are interesting, but that doesn't tell you anything about how to go about studying them. The uh, philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend, had this thing where he said, if you wrote down what scientists do, any sort of uh, methodology for science, what it is, and then you went through, tipexed out science, and replaced all the references to science with organized crime, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> and this is genuinely true. I don't know whether it works in reverse, whether you can replace organized crime with science, because if so, David Cameron needs to get on that shit as quickly as possible. <laughs> so basically, science isn't clear. But that doesn't stop people forming opinions about science, or should we say stereotypes, for instance. Science has a few images that I'm not particularly comfortable with. For instance, the image of science has an uncomfortable relation with sexual magnetism, for instance. I mean, it doesn't help that science points out that 
a good, true sexual magnet would repel as well as attract. But bear in mind, <laughs> this is genuinely true. A friend of mine asked me, Ollie, do you, do you actually know any fit scientists? Are there any fit scientists? They, they weren't even following this up with, because I have very particular tastes, you know. I, I like a man with a Bunsen burner. They, <laughs> they genuinely were asking me the question, are there any fit scientists? I'm pretty sure attractiveness doesn't depend on profession. These do, didn't last time I checked. But there's another bugbear that I have about people looking at science, but uh, I'm going to defer that for a while, and I'm going to tell you a little story that is relevant. I was going through my uh, papers the other day, and I found a book review that I'd written when I was younger of the Bible. Because <laughs> clearly I felt God needed the feedback. <laughs> and uh, in this, this review, I had written that uh, the main character, Jesus, when he dies, it's an interesting plot twist. <laughs> And I described the Genesis creation story as Adam and Eve and God, the universe's first ever third wheel. <laughs> now, I can guarantee there will be a few people in the audience thinking, ah, scientist, hmm, he's making religion look stupid. No, no, that story makes me look stupid. That story that was all that time ago now, it's, <laughs> it's long in the past now, thanks to this. Now, um, yeah, the whole religion and science thing, there isn't a religion versus science thing. Religion and science are compatible. Science does actually give you things to worship. For instance, David Attenborough. <laughs> David Attenborough, in his role as a biologist, for instance, likes to argue there is no pinnacle to evolution, despite the fact that A, there clearly is, and B, it's him. So, yeah, basically, I'd like to just uh, wrap up a bit by, by taking a step back and taking stock. Now, I've been talking about how non-scientists look at scientists and they pigeonhole them and make assumptions about them, but non-scientists in the audience have the right to get quite annoyed at me because I've just basically been pigeonholing all of you as ignorant people who don't like to think about science properly. And that's, that's clearly not the case because in the media today, there's a lot of interest in science. People are genuinely interested in what's going on. The Large Hadron Collider is one of the most recognizable objects in the world. Partly because it's the greatest laser quest mankind has invented. <laughs> but it's also really interesting, although one fact... Hello, people over there. I've only just noticed you. I'm terribly sorry. Um, yes, I'll step it back a bit. Okay, the, the Large Hadron Collider has an interesting little side to it that most people don't know about, and that is the first time it went wrong was actually due to a helium leak, which means the disaster will have sounded something like this. Oh, no, it's all going wrong! <laughs> oh, the entire budget of Europe's science. <laughs> Terribly, terribly embarrassing. They, they must just wish the ground would open up and swallow them up. Or, or a black hole. That was more probable, apparently. But of course, there's one major story that all my friends have been bringing up around me and telling me that uh, science is broken. Because that can happen. Genuinely can, actually. If anyone's interested, go and Google history of quantum mechanics. I won't do that now. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, this is the neutrino experiment, where they found that neutrinos might be able to go faster than the speed of light. Now, this is interesting because lots of people haven't just been interested in all big machines that scientists are playing around with. They're interested in the theory behind it, the special relativity. And I've had quite a lot of nice conversations with my non-scientific friends about special relativity because of it. And I've been telling things like, okay, nothing can travel faster than light. At which point, they bring up Usain Bolt. 
Now, it turns out Usain Bolt is the exception. He is the exception to the special theory of relativity. He can go faster than light. He's not actually black. It's just light can't catch up with him to illuminate him. <laughs> So yeah, that, that's basically my views on science. I hope, I, hope, I hope I've made some sort of interest out of you. I'd just like to, to point out that basically humans, non-scientists or scientists, do share the same DNA, occasional lab-based mutations to one side. Um, yeah, they're the same sort of people. There's no clear dividing line. That makes my job very interesting. So I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope you enjoy the rest of the night. I've been Oliver Marsh. Thank you, and good night. Oliver Marsh there. Well, that's it for this Bright Club Highlights podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the best bits from this month's show. A huge thank you to Miklos Dunker, Graham Fraser, Oliver Marsh and Rosalind Peters and all of the other brilliant performers on the night. And now we have a final song from Rosalind to play us out. I've got a crush on my philosophy teacher So how can I focus on Rousseau or Nietzsche? In fact, you could say that I'm locked to his gaze. The thought I can't be with him all of my days gets me riled. Like a petulant child. Sir, I'll tell you now that I'm able to lay my Descartes on the table. Before I met you, life was doom and gloom, and then I felt for you while I'm only human. Can't concentrate in class. No hope of me getting good marks. I can be the Aristotle to your Plato. I want to meet with you like the summit meets a NATO. So I'll mill around when lesson's done. Hoping we can have a one-to-one. To Sartre, I can be deferential. So come with me, let's get existential. Oh, oh, nobody need no, sir. So can we get a little closer? Now, you got me in a spin noser. You run me over like a bulldozer. You're not like those other men. Maybe we can get a place and then we won't listen to naysayers. Because you're not like those other pl- AJ Ayers. <laughs> no? <laughs> like Caesar, nothing major. Just come be Pascal and I can be a wager. Oh, we can live your fantasy. Like a cozy home in 1950. I'll stay at home, mending and making. At the end of the day, you bring home the Francis bacon. Oh, you're a real heart stopper. You can try and falsify it just like Karl Popper. But our love is determined. Don't be absurd. Hush now, baby, let me have the last word. What more do you need me to say? I want you, is that okay? Thought I might as well say it in rhyme. You can fill my philosophy anytime. time.